This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 21st, 2019. The president is not a white supremacist edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me telephonically, or not telephonically, but electronically, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale Law School from the Yale studios. Hello, Emily, in New Haven. Hello, David. Welcome back from the West Coast. Thank you. It's good to be back on the correct coast again. And John Dickerson appears to be on vacation. That's going to be what I'm going to guess. He's he's not here. And as a result, we have the great pleasure of welcoming back GabFest favorite Jamel Bowie, New York Times columnist. Jamel, it's great to have you back. Is this your first time back as a New York Times person as opposed to as a Slate person? I think be. so. Yeah, this is the first time back. And thank you for having uh, me. It's going to all be different now. <laughs> Who knows how exactly, but it will all be transformed. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of uh, New York Timesness here. You guys are probably fellow union members, and you, you probably like eat lunch in the cafeteria together and stuff. Actually, definitely not, because neither of you ever is in New York. Yeah, but. we don't eat in the cafeteria. I, I'm in the union. I don't know about Jamel, though. Do, are you in the I, union, I, Jamel? I, is that part of being a columnist? I, no, I'm uh, part of being a columnist is that I'm outside of the bargaining unit. Although, of that course, a, solidarity forever. A, that's a topic for another day. Right. <laughs> On this week's show, the Christchurch massacre and white supremacy. What is this new? I mean, is it a new fascination, this new rise of white supremacy? Where does it come from? How can we crush it? Then Beto, Biden, Bernie. Finally, finally, for once, can there be a straight white man as a Democratic Democratic nominee for president? At last. Maybe it's possible. Then the Electoral College, can it be abolished? Should it be abolished? How would it be abolished? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And do not forget that next week, Wednesday, March 27th, we are going to be live at the Lincoln Theater here in Washington, D.C. You can get tickets for that live show at slate.com slash live. And it's going to be wonderful. We're going to have new Democratic Congresswoman Lauren Underwood joining us as a guest. And we are, of course, going to preview, give you a sneak preview into Emily's great new book, Charged. So we're going to talk about that. And we're, of course, we'll go over the political news of the week. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. And Jamel, we're going to be in Charlottesville on April 12th, Friday, April 12th, as That's part right. of the Tom Tom Festival. Yeah, I'm joining you. Twice in a month. That's very good news for us. Go to slate.com slash live. So the Christchurch massacre, 50 people murdered by a gunman at two mosques, a white supremacist Australian it has horrified people around the world, but it has not horrified enough people, apparently, and it has not horrified universally. Jamel, I think what's been so uh, disturbing is that this shooter, like so many recent murderers and would-be murderers and terrorists in, in the last couple of years, was motivated or is motivated by a white supremacist ideology. 
and it was cheered on by internet supporters. What is what is going on with the rise of this this white supremacist movement? And is it a rise? Has it just always been there and we just never noticed it? White power ideology and white power movements have been kind of a a background development in American uh, in the transnational Western world for some time. If his manifesto is to be believed, if his document is to be believed, he is a white supremacist. He believes that uh, white people or people you know defined as white are, are headed for extinction because of immigration, intermarriage. But he also holds other beliefs that don't so neatly fit, given that the best way to describe him is as holding a white power ideology, which is sort of inclusive of white supremacy, but also um, is a bit broader. It includes xenophobia, it includes anti-Islam, it includes anti-Semitism especially. Uh, And I think it would be right to see this shooter not just as part of this kind of internet radicalization, but also we should connect him to uh, a shooter that maybe was at the vanguard of that, Dylan Roof in Charleston, South Carolina. I think we should connect them to the uh, shooter Anders Breivik uh, in Norway. Norway, Norway, Norway. right. Uh, Norway, who also sounded a similar white power note to people going all the way back to the 1980s, to David Lane, to kind of propagandists like William Pierce. The important thing is just to, to note that like this is part of a lineage of actors, of movements that have taken different forms at different times, but kind of you can, you, there are broad and clear continuities. What What is new about this? I mean, it appears when I look at this, what, what has happened in the last few years is that the ability of the internet to mobilize and connect people and also to broadcast to each other is one big difference. There's this tremendous anxiety fanned by these white nationalists, but also fanned by real events about immigration, particularly in Europe. This has been a, a total panic. There's some sense that there's economic insecurity all around as globalism grows. And then there's Trump. And then there's the the way in which Trump has given cover and given moral cover to people who espouse despicable, horrible things, the normal condemnation that the United States at the highest level and the, the all the arm of government usually bestows upon anybody like this has vanished. And therefore, people, I think, feel a... Uh, there's a loss of moral credibility and a loss of ability to condemn this that didn't used to exist. Is there is that what is new? And which of those forces is most important of the new forces? Well, I think that's a good summary. I mean, another thing to bring in here, and this connects to what Jamel was saying about this kind of strain of toxic ideology that connects some of these shooters, the United States, you know, the the FBI had much more attention specifically focused on white nationalist violence, which it basically like stopped working on because of the politics, because any kind of, you know, focus on um, these white people and their danger was seen as a threat to, you know, American values in a way that focusing on terrorism related to radical Islamic ideology was not. So, you know, I think there's just been like a loss of law enforcement focus, which doesn't obviously directly relate to New Zealand, but is something that like should matter a lot here. And as we see this replication, understanding that this really is a set of beliefs that consistently or at least periodically leads people to violence seems crucial for preventing it. 
In terms of the factors you just listed, I think it's important to talk about the social media part of this. And I mean, in some sense, Trump is just like part of this, right? Because he's such a presence on social media and is successful in that medium. But I mean, there was just this obvious way that this killing was just like made to go viral. And then a lot of criticism of Facebook and YouTube for their sort of, you know, usual rather dismal efforts in preventing that. But I thought there was a really pretty persuasive New York Times op-ed by Charlie Warzel pointing out that, yeah, I mean, it's a problem that the social media companies don't have a way to really shut down the dissemination of this kind of video and images, but more of the problem that they don't have a way of monitoring or encouraging their social media communities to build that does that prevents people f- like this from finding each other and really elevating and amplifying their messages. Well, the, but, and that is just like such a huge challenge that the, but, I think the platforms haven't even really faced yet. But I mean, there was a BuzzFeed piece and there was a Wired piece both on the subject, which point out that they do have the capacity because they've deployed that capacity against ISIS and against the yes. the Islamist terror videos and and horror and torture videos that that made their way around. And they made it much harder for people to connect with each other and to find things that would radicalize them. But they have been... Right. And I feel like that proves my point. They have the capacity. They haven't used it yet. They don't have the willingness to use it because it's because this white power, white supremacist ideology is so connected to political movements that have huge power, especially in the United States. Right. And we see Republican politicians, including Trump this week, um, attacking Facebook and other social media platforms for their supposed bias against conservatives, when in fact, I think you can make the argument that the companies are actually bending over backwards not to appear biased and that that has created this breeding ground for this really dangerous dissemination of information. Jamel, what's your take on how important social media is in this? I think social media is important in that it sort of broadens the scope of people who could be drawn in, who uh, hold kind of beliefs that are maybe just like a few notches down the spectrum from these ideologies. And the internet makes it pretty easy, and social media uh, makes it pretty easy for um, someone who in the past may have never encountered like someone articulating a coherent version of them, people who may have never necessarily been exposed to these things can kind of get sucked in um, uh, very quickly and uh, and decide to, depending on them as individuals in the context they live in, decide to act as a result. What did you guys think of the um, Prime Minister of New Zealand's call not to say the name of the shooter this week and to, to not allow... Um, to, to not allow the media and, I guess, all of us to be used to kind of further his fame. I appreciated it because I uh, didn't catch what his name was, and so it allowed me not to remember to, to use it on the show. No, I, I, I actually right. I need someone to, to advise me on what the right response there is. I, do, the last person who talks to me about it always convinces me, yes, you should use the name and talk all about his ideology. And then the next person convinces me, no, don't use his name. Don't talk about the ideology. I don't know. Jamel? I feel like the ideology is separate from, like, the fame of the individual, right? Like, it is important to identify the ideology and explore it because we need to be able to locate where this violence is coming from and have some sort of sense of where it's likely to come from. But I 
I'm really drawn to this notion that we, by broadcasting people's names and photographs, feed into this, like, egomaniacal um, desire they have for attention and that it creates this, could create this kind of copycat syndrome. Right. I'm in the same place. I, I don't think it's necessary to talk about the name of the shooter, um, uh, details of his life, show pictures. I think all of that is, is irrelevant. Uh, we don't we don't necessarily give that kind of attention to ordinary criminals. I don't think we should give it to terrorists either. But it's critical, I, I agree, to talk about the ideology, to talk about the ideas, the social context for all of this um, in order to be able to uh, to stop it, because otherwise, what ends up happening is, is these things are treated as basically like acts of God, freak accidents, and we move on until the next one. And that that clearly, that's just not the case. As we continue doing that, it threatens people's lives. I mean, most of the like attacks in Western countries over the last what five years have been by white power extremists, straight up. Like they they constitute kind of like the the, the violent threat to ordinary people. And if you want to go broader than that, like you look at the things in the last 150 years or so of Western history, like what has actually threatened sort of Western democracies. And it, it has been like viciously violent white supremacists, whether that's the civil war in the, in the reaction to reconstruction in the United States, whether that's Nazi Germany in Europe. So I, we gotta, we gotta, treat this stuff as the potentially existential threat it could be. What, one of the things that I think is so difficult about about treating it as an existential threat and about stomping out and quashing it and making it as, as, as morally unacceptable as it should be is the ironic nature of it and the way in which certain adherents to it use irony and use, use a distancing effect and use joking and use a kind of form of comic trolling as a way of hiding what they're doing. There's a way of saying they, they can always hide behind this idea. Oh, we're just playing around. We're just being playful. We're just, it's just memes. It's just, I mean, the, the Pepe the Frog, like the, there's, there's a frog. It's, it's, it has this kind of cover of, of comedy. And if you don't, if you're, oh, you're just not in on the joke or you just can't take a joke. And it reminds me, it weirdly, like the, 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 one of the things this, this, the whole, kind of I mean this is less true of the the actual murderers than of the people who are who who fall short of that reminds me of what Abby Hoffman used to do on the left which was this performative performative undermining of the culture which always had an element of jokiness but was also simultaneously deadly serious and it's a very effective it's very hard to inoculate against that because if you take it completely seriously, people are like, "You're why are you taking this totally seriously? This is just, this is, you know, we're just playing around here. And if you don't take it seriously, then people are actually galvanized and go out and murder people. And it's where like PewDiePie, this, this YouTube phenomenon, who's a joker, but also like clearly turns people in, in a dark way or makes it, makes it easier for people to turn in a dark way. And that, that kind of ironic piece of this is is very unsettling to me. Do have you, either of you guys have any thoughts on that or ways to deal with it? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that the memes on social media are so much like the par- political cartoons of old. And what's fun about them is their sort of extremity and their humor and sarcasm. And um, it is hard to see those things as dangerous. As soon as something is at all funny, even if it's really dark humor, 
part of at least my response is to think like, okay, how, you know, you don't want to be the curmudgeon who is like thinking of it purely as political propaganda. And yet it is absolutely possible to just turn humor into this like, you know, tool of really dangerous ideas. I, I think it's important to note that this this sort of trolling as politics isn't isn't new, isn't novel. Um, you know, my my kind of area of subject expertise is is kind of like the 19th century uh, post Civil War period, and you can understand, say, the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan as in part being a big troll, right? Like, they dress up in these ridiculous costumes, they give themselves these ridiculous names, they pretend to be ghosts to scare the former former slaves. It's an opportunity for sort of, like, japes on people that they hate. The hate is sincere, but it's expressed in this joking, trolling way. In, in doing that, it kind of gives, gives space for people to behave in violent, uh, antisocial ways. If you, um, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, in, in a 1946 essay called The Anti-Semite and, Anti-Semite and Jew, uh, says, the way he describes it is he says, they know that their remarks are frivolous, open to challenge, but they are amusing themselves for it is their adversary, adversary who is obliged to use words responsibly since he believes in words. Um, uh, they like to play discourse for by, by giving ridiculous reasons. They discredit the seriousness of their uh, interlocutors. Uh, sort of a, a use of absurdity and trolling to get a rise out of opponents and also to attempt to set the terms of the discourse, which gives them a kind of power. So I, I see this too as operating in a, in a tradition. This is just kind of how these people roll. Those historical examples were great, Jamel. I know. Thanks my for God. bringing that in. have that at the tip of your tongue. It's really He didn't have enviable. that at the tip of his tongue. He was like, oh, they're going to mention irony. I got that. Yeah. I got oh, some yeah. Sartre. Right. No, I like, got some he just right had here. his notes about the title of that Sartre essay, or however you no, say so that. I don't think so. You mentioned it, and then I know that essay exists, and I know that line exists, so I kind of just yeah. did a quick Google search. Uh, nice. Well played, well, that friend. That was some fast Googling. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. GabFest named one of the 100 most important podcasts by New York Magazine, so you definitely need a bonus segment there um so today that bonus segment jamel and emily are going to talk about traveling in the south because emily has just done her first travels in the south and jamel is a southerner and wait not the whole south okay not like i'd never been south before. whatever I why i went to mississippi okay, and alabama fine in the that's it in the deep south the deepest part of the deep you south. You make me sound like a total Neanderthal. Neanderthals always get such a bad rap. Anyway, go to slate.com. That's true. Slash... Maybe that's unfair. Yeah, anyway, we, we, to... we make fun of them, but we, like, we wipe them out. It's not cool. <laughs> All right. I take it back. Sorry, Neanderthals. <laughs> <laughs> you were nice people, I'm sure. Better than humans. Go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. This episode of The GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, 
with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Biden, Beto, Bernie, the killer bees. Not sure why Buttigieg, Buttigieg, however you say that guy's name, why he is not there too. I guess because he's not straight, maybe. But anyway, the three straight white males have been getting lots more attention in the Democratic primary and a lot of money, but a lot more attention than you might expect, might hope for, might think would be their due. Bernie Sanders brought in $5.9 million in his first day of fundraising. It was almost immediately surpassed by Beto O'Rourke, who brought in $6.1 million. Joe Biden is in his inimitable Biden way is is signaling that he's about to announce that he's going to run for president and he's leading in almost all the early polls, although I don't know what that means we can discuss or not. So, Emily, what is the purpose of a Joe Biden candidacy? Why, why should it exist? He is old. He represents a kind of accommodationism that seems impossible today. But what I mean, should it exist? The argument is that the Democrats need some moderate, pragmatic candidates who have the power to rally people broadly across the country, especially white people, especially the white working class who um, get lots of attention, and that Biden will be able to pick off Trump supporters that the other candidates won't be able to do. I'm not really sure why we think Biden would be better at that than Beto. Uh, maybe Jamel can parse that one for me. But Biden's supposed to be the sort of establishment part of the Democratic Party. You know, he has his like glad handing way- Delaware ways. And that's supposed to have this broader appeal, um, especially to older voters and white voters that some of the other candidates are assumed to lack. I don't know if that's really fair, but that seems like the conventional wisdom read on Biden. So, I mean, J- Jamel, you... Um had this great phrase that you can defeat Trump without defeating Trumpism. And you, you use Biden as the embodiment of that. What did you mean by that? So I, I wrote that apropos of a Washington Post story about Biden's past, like in his first decade in national politics as um, an opponent of busing um, to integrate schools. And if you look at it in the moment, right, in the 1970s, you can't be a proponent of integration and an opponent of busing. In practice, opposing busing just meant opposing integration. And Biden was a vociferous opponent, using language that if we heard it now, we would sort of be taken aback um, at its at how frankly racist kind of is. And if you if you use that as a starting point for Biden's career and kind of just look forward, what you see is a political figure who opposed busing, um, was harshly tough on crime, um, kind of embraced in in full kind of the carceral politics of the late eighties and nineties. Was in, was a was a uh, fervent drug warrior who backed welfare reform and kind of that whole set of policies. And what that looks like 
is a politician whose kind of lodestar is the suburban white voter who is afraid of kind of racial change or believes that black people or low-income black people in particular either need to be like controlled or disciplined, that there's a pathological culture and it threatens kind of the prosperity of these places. It's already taken down cities and it needs to be controlled. Whether or not Biden personally believes that is sort of irrelevant, That's the, those are the politics that I think he was uh, supporting. Looking at how he frames his appeal now to kind of an idealized uh, like white working class person to sort of what, you know, what like a early 20th century Marxist might call the labor aristocracy, your firefighters, your police officers, your factory workers, um, uh, your hard hats. Uh, looking at how he pitches his appeal to those people in particular, it's not really not crazy to wonder if, yeah, Biden can beat Trump, but would he end up beating Trump by basically being a more authentic version of what Trump is supposed to be? Um, and even if that does not come with the racial demagoguery, I don't think it would, it would still be bolstering kind of the assumptions beneath what Trump is doing, that there is actually a like a, a hierarchy of workers, and some of them deserve our uh, our attention and support more than others. Emily, I'm sure you're relieved that there, there are um, three straight white guys who seem to be serious contenders for the uh, Democratic um nomination are you just offering me up a big fat yeah. meatball no David why why <laughs> does it matter i'm really I mean, excited that they're the ones we're talking about today and the two of them are the ones have raised so much more money than everyone else yeah. that seems that that makes my heart beat. but is it how can we talk about it how can how can how how do we grapple with this fact because obviously it unsettles people um both in both directions they're like oh this this is the kind of a beto especially with when people talk about beto it's like oh he's young, he's handsome, he's, you know, so charismatic and appealing, and he'll reach people. And, uh, and it's troublesome. But also, maybe there's something to it. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I mostly feel agnostic about all of these candidates. And in one sense, I resent how eternally long this Democratic primary process is going to go for. Like, it's just going to be forever. I mean, it's like a year, a whole year we're going to be talking about this. On the other hand, I guess at the end, we're going to know there are strengths and weaknesses ad nauseum. And hopefully the party will make a good choice. I don't know about the best choice, a good choice. Like it will all be out on the table. I don't know. I, so I don't want to be stridently opposing or for anyone right now because it just seems like useless and also not my job. But I, I do, <laughs> one does notice um, the way in which uh, at least some people in the party are moving. You know, the other thing though, to be fair, is that Biden and Bernie and Beto, despite all the similarities and the fact that it's fun to say their names together, like they do represent different kind of strains of the party. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders is standing over to the left calling for big spending programs in government, um, you know, occupying that lane in a way that obviously he did in 2016. Beto seems much sort of gauzier to me. It was interesting to see him not embrace the Sanders version of Medicare for all this week. I kind of like that policy debate because I do wonder if a lot of Americans would rather choose than be told that they have to move to a single payer system. Um, and then, of course, Biden has these different attributes we were just talking about. So uh, 
I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, you can also argue that some of the other candidates like Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, who are women and people of color, or Cory Booker, a person of color, that it, that their failure to fundraise to the same degree has to do with their particular candidacies. Or you can decide that these early poll numbers and these early fundraising numbers just don't mean a whole lot and just, like, keep watching these folks. I mean, we haven't seen them on anything like a debate stage where they're going to be accountable to each other. Well, Jamel, the two candidates who really seem to be getting people going are Elizabeth Warren, who is doing the work. She's she is both galvanizing crowds and also setting the legislative agenda. And then Pete Buttigieg, who every time I turn around, people I respect and admire are, are gushing over the guy. Do you think either of them is likely to 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 carry that forward to sort of be in the top tier of candidates? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm sort of with Emily here that it's um, it's way too early. We are what's it? It's, it's March now. Um, we're two months into 2019. At this point in 2015, I want to say Scott Walker on the Republican side was sort of the guy to beat. At this point in 2011 on the Republican side, Tim Pawlenty was um, was was riding high. Neither Walker nor Pawlenty made it into the fall of that year. In 2007, on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton was the juggernaut. John Edwards was the next sort of uh, most formidable candidate, and Barack Obama, while quite popular, was not was still sort of obviously a low tier candidate in the mix. Uh, a lot can happen. Whether people can kind of like build turn whatever grassroots they, support they have into a sustainable campaign is not quite clear. Whether or not someone who doesn't seem to have a ton of media attention and popular support can, through their work, create a, a large and sustainable campaign is also in question. There's so much, there's so much sort of on the table still that I'm not sure that it's, I'm not sure like what what there is to do other than watch and observe. And, um, you know, with regards to to Beto or, or Bernie or or Harris for that matter, who also seems to have. Um, quite a few supporters. I read. I read their fundraising numbers as basically representing kind of their their base level support. Like here is, here is where they are on the ground, um, and that can change and shift depending on how things unfold. I don't know anything <laughs> definitively, and I think the best we could do is just collect information. Nobody. It is true that nobody knows anything. There is this talk, Emily, of of Biden as a way of inoculating himself against the charge that he is infinitely old and uh and represents a kind of uh discredited or or or, or a wing of the party which isn't in favor that he might pick a running mate really early even as soon as this summer or this fall and that the person whose name is brooded about most is stacy abrams do you think that would help him or hurt him i mean to me it's it seems like that was kind of smack of desperation and highlight. It would, in fact, highlight all that people fear about him, that he is too old and that he's out of touch. And so he is he's brought some he's he's just getting cover rather than trying to stand up and stand for himself. 
Well, I think if he did it, he'd have to do it and also start talking in a way that acknowledges these um, stances he took in the past and like moves on from them, recognizes that they were wrong. I mean, if we're going to have to relitigate the 90s as well as the 70s and the pretty retrograde things Biden was saying then, he is going to have to like show clearly that he doesn't think those things anymore. And I think that... um, Recruiting Stacy would be a great great move for him in that regard. I'm not sure I see what's in it for Stacey Abrams to tie herself to Joe Biden early on like this when it's not clear at all that he's going to win. So I, that's the question I have about it. Not, is it good for Joe Biden, but is it good for Stacey Abrams? Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Stacey Abrams is clearly a star, not even a rising star. She is a star in the Democratic Party. She... Uh, has a chance to run for Senate in 2020 and to run again for governor in 2022. If she is successful at increasing voter registration and helping move Georgia further into swing state status, she could very well win those elections. And in the very near future, she could be a senator with an cl- even clearer path to becoming president of the United States if she wants, if that's what she wants to do. So I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily see what she has to gain from tying her star to Joe Biden, especially if Joe Biden ends up crashing and burning. Didn't um, Cru- it didn't Ted Cruz make a play like this at the sort of last desperate edge of the 2016 yeah, he, primary, and it really he, bombed he, with Carly Fiorina. Right, that's right. He he announced that Fiorina would be his running mate, and it was um, people kind of just shrugged, like, "All right, that's cool. <laughs> you can do that, I guess." So we've talked a lot about the male candidates here, and that may reflect some bias in actually how the media covers male and female candidates. Emily, do you think there is a distinction in how we cover the the candidates based on their gender? I think there often is, but also that there's a lot of sensitivity to it that has been lacking or less in previous cycles. And I've been struck this week by a number of feminists who've been pointing out that um, Pete Buttigieg has been kind of swooned over in the media for seeming like an intellectual, seeming like he has... Um, you know, there was like this thing about him re- learning Norwegian very quickly, which I got to say, I do think is pretty cool and amazing. But people like Jill Filipovich were pointing out that Elizabeth Warren is getting often gets criticized as being too wonky. And it seemed like Mayor Pete was being celebrated for the same attributes. I, I do think there is something to watch there. And I was um, really interested in a piece this week, I, I read it this week, I think it's from a couple months ago, by Linda Hirschman in the Washington Post, where she was arguing that the media focuses too much on gender in this way that can only kind of reinforce stereotypes and make people too aware of whether women are really, quote, electable or not. And that does seem important to me at this moment in particular, where I think a lot of Democratic primary voters care a great deal about defeating President Trump. And so they are looking at signals from other voters like, well, I'm, you know, for like maybe I think that, you know, this female candidate would be great. But if no one else is going to go for her, then forget it. So I do think there's just like such a tricky part of media coverage, social media, any kind of thinking through a broad field like this in terms of how these dynamics play out. Everybody's watching each other. A broad field, field of broads. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We're talking about the Electoral College, thank God, although it's hard to imagine it's going to go away. Wouldn't it be great if there was a way to merge the college admission scandal and the Electoral College scandal? They're both such... <laughs> disgraces two really it, bad uses of college two forms of college that need to do a great deal of repentance and reform so jamel how did electoral college abolition come up as an issue and does it does it have legs do you think so i think this week it came up as an issue because elizabeth warren was asked about it at a forum she was doing in mississippi and she came out and said no i think it should be abolished Buttigieg also endorsed that view and then Beta O'Rourke uh, endorsed the view as well. I know when I had written about it uh, last month, I was writing apropos of Colorado sending on to the National Popular Vote Compact, which under the terms of that agreement, if once the number of member states is equal to 270 electoral votes, all of those member states would give their votes to the winner of the National Popular Vote, sort of regardless of how the state itself voted. So if Colorado happened to go red in 2020, if there are 270 uh, votes in the compact and, the va- and Colorado happened to go red in 2020, Colorado would still give its electoral college votes to whoever won the popular vote, even if that person didn't win the state. So th- that's what I was writing off of. There's this, there's this conversation sparked by Warren. Uh, I think it's all very good. I- I've said this a lot on Twitter. Uh, I-, I believe this very strongly. There is no actual, like, there's no justification for the Electoral College as it currently exists that makes any sense. Um, If you believe that one person ought to equal one vote, then the Electoral College fails that test. And the Senate fails that test too, but at least the premise of the Senate is equal representation of states. If you're arguing against the Senate, you have to essentially say, well, it just shouldn't exist, period. But once you, once Americans accepted that uh, uh, who wins the popular vote in the state should determine who wins the electors, which more or less happened by 1804 is is when states began doing that. Once you accept that premise, the entire system falls apart. This isn't just uh, Jamel Bowie, uh, anti-electoral college militant speaking, like James Madison, who helped design the whole damn thing, uh, in a letter late in life, made this point. To paraphrase, is more or less like, this is a disaster. Like, if it works like this, then it is a recipe for division. So, you know, we should either return it to what we intended it to be, which was something not dissimilar to a system where parties nominate, like handpick and nominate candidates for president, and then a group of people sit, to get, sit together and decide amongst themselves who should be president. Either either you do that, which is how it was designed, or you get rid of it. And for my part, I actually think that it would, it would have more democratic legitimacy if it literally were a Congress elected to choose a president than it does now. Emily, what are the constitutional problems, if any, with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact? I think people think... God. People think that it's a good idea, and it's certainly... There's... It's a lot more likely to become law than we are to have a constitutional amendment getting rid of the Electoral College, which will never happen. But is it actually – would it actually take effect? Would it actually happen? It's hard to imagine that it could ever really be binding. Right. Well, I guess – I mean, I don't know. I feel like you could argue this 
both ways if you're just sort of arguing it not politically, right? Which is like, so the argument... Um, against it is that it's a clear run around the provision in the Constitution for the Electoral College and that that wins and the states can't choose against that. Um, I think the argument in favor of it is that it's the states are free to decide how to um, dispense their electors as they see fit and that it doesn't they're not bound by, you know, lockstep version of the Electoral College that we see now. One thing I was wondering is if nobody or I don't know if nobody's challenged it, but the states that currently divide up their Electoral College voters um, by district, they are allowed to do that, right? Maine and Nebraska have this rule where it's by congressional district as opposed to the whole state, and that has been allowed. So if you're allowed to do that, why can't you decide to behave the way in which this compact would have the states behave. I wonder if that precedent would help both with the sort of normative question well, of like convincing people this is totally fine. I mean, with the, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, it's just that with the with the congressional district, it's it's in a way, it's the opposite. They're, they're doing it there because they're recognizing that the voters in this district have chosen a particular candidate. They've chosen candidate X, even though Maybe the whole state has chosen candidate Y if you look at it as a whole, but they're recognizing that the votes have been cast. But the, the problem with the compact is it's explicitly saying electors, Colorado has voted for this person. They have expressed well, their popular electors, will. Electors, you now have to thing. act explicitly against the popular will. So it's, it seems to me that but, yeah, like, that's true. it has to, it has to I, yeah, yeah, be yeah, a different yeah, legal a principle. I don't. I don't think that's well, necessarily the case yeah. because, as written, the elect. I mean, remember the electoral college, as it exists in the constitution, doesn't mandate anything about what the electors do. The electors are free to do whatever they choose. So, as it stands under the status quo, if Colorado were to choose a candidate and it picks electors, and the electors then say, "Well, I want to vote for this other candidate," there's nothing to stop them from doing right. that. Um, uh, right. That's the winning constitutional argument with Jamal, who actually knows the fa- about Well, the, right. The idea of the faithless elector. But the faithless elector, as you point out from the beginning, Jamal, is that basically by the early 19th century, the idea of the faithless elector was gone. The idea that electors had autonomy essentially vanished. And it hasn't been, so I th- yeah, it hasn't been common law really for 200 years. About what's, right. But what's actually in the Constitution, what the Constitution still allows, then Jamal's right. I'd also add that, like, I think part of the – when discussing the Electoral College and discussing the alternative system, I think one of the problems in the conversation is that everyone's still stuck thinking in terms of states. But if you've agreed, if a state has agreed that what matters is who wins the national popular vote, then what happens in the state is kind of irrelevant, right? It, it's just what matters about the state in that case just becomes, like, some arbitrary container for a set of voters. And what matters is what the voters have chosen. And so it's not – it's not like violating the will of the voters of, uh, necessarily if you're deciding to give all your votes to um, the winner of the national popular vote. Because in this case, it doesn't matter how Colorado voted. It matters for you know whatever down-ballot races may exist. But for the presidency, it doesn't matter how Colorado votes. It just matters how the country votes. And, and Colorado you, has made a democratic decision by joining the compact to exactly. allot its electoral votes in the manner you just described. Exactly. Right? So it's not it is still directly attached to democratic decision making. And I think kind of broadly, not just here, not just in, in this particular conver- conversation, but, you know, one of the objections to a national popular vote is it will let the big states dominate the small states. But this, again, I mean, 
A, it's mathematically impossible. There, <laughs> there just aren't that many people. There are a lot of people in the big states. There aren't that many people. Um, uh, and they're in, you know, a 60-40 split, which is actually larger than what these splits typically are between Democrats and Republicans, uh, doesn't translate to like, you know, you winning you winning California and Texas and New York and then winning outright. But the more important thing is that this it, that that's sort of conceptually off. Like it doesn't really matter how California votes. It matters, you know, it just it just matters how many votes a candidate won in the container that we call California. And so if you're a Republican and you you run the table on kind of like the conservative parts of LA County and the Bay Area and then rural California, and maybe you lose the state still by 10 points, the, all that matters is that you got those votes. And if you if you didn't construct a coalition with voters across the country, and it's a majority coalition, then congratulations, your president. W- losing California or winning it doesn't doesn't really matter. Right. And the other thing that's interesting in the political science literature is that candidates uh, still campaign in rural areas when they're running statewide, right? So if you're talking about a different concern, which is that the cities would dominate over rural areas because they're so much more populous, it seems like we have evidence that that's not the case, that people still go everywhere because they're looking for votes and also because they want to be seen as representing the whole polity, whether it's the state or the country. Right. Well, one thing that would, may actually happen in the event of a national popular vote is that because because constituencies and communities uh, of voters aren't necessarily bound by state borders, you will get kind of novel travel patterns. So, for example, I, I, the, the Republicans spending a lot of time in rural California or upstate New York or western Massachusetts is a real possibility because those are vote-rich parts of the country uh, for Republicans, for people trying to win rural like white votes. On the other side, a Democrat may see a lot of advantage in spending some time in the Deep South. You're never going to win it. You're not going to win those states. But if you can jack up your the, your percentage of the vote, if you can have a stronger loss in those states, those are a lot of votes that can then you know be joined with votes in other parts of the country. I think you'd most likely see. I was I was looking at a map of um of uh, media markets recently, and as one does. And what you'd most likely see are candidates targeting media markets like St. Louis or Oklahoma City that kind of are cheap and extend to large parts of the country versus spending much time in California, New York, um, Texas. Although that would happen, I mean, they would spend time there too, but I think you'd see actually a pretty broad distribution of of time because your voters can be anywhere. If If you are targeting cities and a Similarly, with big states, there aren't actually enough people in this country's largest cities to like dominate the, the national popular vote. But if you're going to try to do that, you would spend time in New York as well as Austin, as well as Seattle, as well as Chicago, um, as well as Milwaukee, right? Sort of, you would spend time across the country. Uh, and if, likewise, if you're trying to target rural areas and exurbs, you would be spending a lot of time in kind of, you know, the counties around St. Louis. You'd be spending a lot of time in the Richmond, Virginia metropolitan area. There are a lot of different combinations for, for uh, constructing a coalition. That's interesting. I mean, the other thing I kept thinking about was turnout, right? Like that the presidential election is the 
most striking kind of galvanizing force in American politics. And yet if you're being rational about it, like my vote for it doesn't count at all. Um, whereas if you could actually hitch together turnout drives and efforts to increase Democratic participation with the presidential election, you might just have lots more people voting. And that's where candidates would put their energy would be in turning out their likely supporters. So I want to wrap this up actually by making sort of building on that point you just made there, Emily, which is what I like about this move against the Electoral College is not that I think it will be successful because I don't think it will be successful. I think there are too many real barriers, but that it 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 aligns with the overall movement that Democrats, I think, have wisely uh, sided with, which is this idea of helping all votes count, getting everybody out voting, making voter registration, voter participation, easier voting, voter turnout all central to what it means to be a citizen and what it means to to be aligned with the Democratic Party. And it puts the Democrats on the side of voting as a civic good, which A, is a great counter narrative to the, to the narrative we have had about voting over the past really generation, which is that it's the canard of voter fraud has been the dominant narrative. And so to, to sort of take that, to take the story back from Republicans is great. And also just it's the right thing. It's like we should, as a society, want participation and and want everyone's vote counted. And and I think Democrats. This is this is an issue where I think Democrats are not only on the side of virtue; they are on the side of. Uh, it's also politically, uh, politically a, a wise place to be. And and the electoral college is a good, nice piece of it. It is the most fantastical piece of it, but it's a good, nice piece of it. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, when you, Emily, are celebrating the spring solstice this evening, when you're looking at a day that is half light and half darkness and pondering what that means, and you have a beer in your hand, what are you going to be chattering about? Oh, my God. I am so frustrated this week by an effort to effectively derail the um, state ballot initiative and Florida constitutional amendments. I'm so glad you're going to talk about this. To former felons. I mean, this is like exactly the opposite move of what you were just talking about, David. Um, We were all just talking about, which is that. State voters clearly expressed their will. They passed this um, amendment by 66 percent of the vote. And now the Republican-dominated Florida legislature is trying to strip the right to vote from really most of the 1.4 million people who just regained it with such a diabolical method. Um, What the legislature may do is redefine what it means to complete your sentence to include any kind of payment you still owe in the form of um, court fines or fees. And Florida has just astronomical sums of money that it That's charges. fucked up. It is so upsetting. And it I just, it is a poll tax. It just seems to me like this is exactly what a poll tax is. Like the voters in Florida said, that you can vote and now you can't because you didn't pay some money. Um, It just um, is kind of breathtaking to me. And I also, you know, I covered the um, 
amendment for a campaign. And one of the most striking things about it was that there was zero opposition, really. And a lot of evangelicals and conservatives actually came out in favor of it, saying, like, yes, we believe in second chances. Um, Ron DeSantis, the um, Republican who won for governor in Florida, was very muted about his own stance. And now I wonder if this was the plan all along. Um, and if Republicans in Florida just figured, well, we'll just thwart this bill once we retake control of the legislature. And the governor's mansion, what's particularly important about that is that DeSantis has had three um, Florida Supreme Court appointments. And so the Florida Supreme Court has gone from being like four to three to now six to one dominated by Republicans, which makes one um, concerned that this sort of obvious point about a poll tax may not get the kind of hearing um, it would get on a different kind of state Supreme Court. So anyway, I'm just watching all this with like great disappointment and chagrin. Wow. That's, I, I had not followed the details of that. That is gruesome. Jamel, I hope you have a happier yeah, chatter. Bad. I mean, I, I, I mean, sort of, but I'll just add real quick that it's a straight up Jim Crow law. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's like unambiguous. Yep. That's, that's what Jim Crow laws were. They weren't laws that were like, they didn't say black people can't do this. They just were uh, requiring onerous requirements that would disproportionately hit black people. Um, and and they, kind of, the one in Florida directly was came out of the effort to end Reconstruction. Like it is right. absolutely from that same sort of runaway state constitutional convention that destroyed Reconstruction in Florida. Uh, my cocktail chatter is um, it's not necessarily happy, but my wife and I have been listening to the audiobooks of the the Three Body Problem trilogy, which is a, oh, yeah. a trilogy of uh, science fiction novels by a Chinese author whose name I, I, I cannot quite pronounce, so I'm not going to attempt. But the, the first book is called Three Body Problem. They basically deal with what happens when humanity contacts an alien race. Like how how is that alien? What would be the nature of that race? What would be the nature of the contact? And what would be the nature of the relationship? And they are uh, maybe some of the bleakest science fiction books I've ever I've ever encountered. Um, they posit a uh, a world where the alien race is sort of like warlike and hostile. Uh, that our contact uh, leads inevitably to our demise, and that humanity is uh, even in the face of this humanity is sort of ill prepared for any kind of unity. It's all very uh, troubling and um, disturbing, and they're very good and kind of very compelling and gripping. So you should you should read them or listen to them. The first audiobook in particular is actually quite good. The reader is is very talented. I read the first one and I and basically understood it, and then the second one I just was utterly lost, utterly confounded, and I didn't <laughs> I didn't even hazard the third one. Uh, I've been told that the third one becomes even more uh, insanely cosmic in scope, um, uh, but I find the second one—I find the second one espe resonates especially given conversations over climate change um, and over its uh, potential to destroy human civilization as we know it. That—that uh, that, I would be shocked if the author, the author also did not have that in mind while he was writing uh, that book. My chatter is also about a book, also about a trilogy, in fact. And a grim trilogy as well. It's uh, the author is Don Winslow. He's gotten a lot of attention because the, the final book in a trilogy, which is I think it's called the Power of the Dog trilogy, which is the name of the first novel. The final book just came out. I'm in the middle of the first book, which is the Power of the Dog, and it's these are uh, books about the war on drugs, told from the perspective of a DEA agent, uh, cartel lords, mobsters. Uh, 
a, a Catholic priest, and they are genre fiction, so they're not like the best written books you've ever read, and there's plenty of violence and a lot of sex and objectification of women in particular, but they are really vivid and gripping and an amazing portrait of the border and of the drug war and their grand sweep. They start back in, in the seventies. And I think that by the time the trilogy is finished, it'll be in the present day. So I, I recommend them highly Don Winslow's uh, trilogy about it. So it's the power of the dog, the cartel and the border, the names of the books. And, for listener chatter, I want to urge you to please keep them coming. Please tweet them to us at @slategabfest and share them with us uh, on Facebook at facebook.com/gabfest. Something that you are fascinated with. And this week, I picked out one which is—it's a chatter that I myself have have often said at other people's cocktail parties. It's just a really familiar, delightful fact that is one of the great facts in American history, brought to us by Doug Paul. And it is the, the presidential trivia question. Name the oldest president with living grandchildren. And the answer is that John Tyler, the 10th president of the United States, has two living grandchildren. We're talking about a man who was president in the 1820s. And he has two. Uh, 1830s, maybe. 18, yeah, 18, 1830s. 1830s. President in the 1830s. And he has grandchildren who are alive two of them today which is astonishing what it's astonishing yeah he he had children very late in life yeah and then and his they, children had children very late in life yeah it's really you do the math and you're like oh i guess that's possible wow that's amazing anyway so uh john tyler has living grandchildren i i hope they um live for a while longer because it's a great fact to have <laughs> I mean, another way you could put that. This is just this is just how I would put it. Is that those grandkids, their granddad owned slaves. Do you think there's anyone? There's nobody alive whose parents owned slaves. No. No. Could, could there be? Wait. Good grief! No. Well, if you were born in 1910. I mean, it's possible. It's like possible. if your if your if your parent was a teenager in yeah. 1865, then it's possible. Right. It's right at the edge. It's probably, probably it's not, not the case. Anyway, that is our show for today. The Gaffes is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Special thanks to Danielle Hewitt, who's here with me, and Ryan McAvoy at Yale. You should follow us on Twitter at at Slate Gabfest and tweet your chatter to us. And please... If you have the chance, join us in Washington next week at the Lincoln Theater, slate.com slash live next Wednesday night for our, a live GabFest or in Charlottesville on April 12th, we'll, where we'll be back with Jamel in his hometown. And uh, you can get tickets for either of those, again, at slate.com slash live. For Emily Basil and Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Hello, Slate Plus. I'm... Uh, I'm a little bit fuzzy-headed, so uh, apologies because I just got off a red-eye flight from the West Coast. So I'm I'm confused, and where I was not was in the South, which is where Emily. Just, well, that's really an excellent opening. Was. That was really great misdirection <laughs> for our listeners. <laughs> I'm really tired by a trip that we're not going to talk about because we're going to talk about something else. <laughs>
Proving the point that you are fuzzy headed. I'm so fuzzy headed. What we're going to talk about is traveling in the South. Right. So Emily just took her trip in Alabama and Mississippi, and Jamel is, of course, a Southerner, and I'm sure has spent plenty of time traveling the South. And I'm sure they've had and went to to Oklahoma recently. Different, different experiences and different thoughts on it. So take it away, Emily and Jamel. Where did you travel? I was following Elizabeth Warren around for the last few days. So she started out in Memphis, Tennessee, and then her campaign went to a couple of small cities in Mississippi, Greenville and Cleveland, and then um, Jackson for the CNN town hall she did at Jackson State. Um, And then she went to Selma and Birmingham, Alabama. And yeah, it was my, not by any stretch, my first time in Tennessee or Memphis, which is actually one of the cities I've probably gone to the most in the country because I went there for um, book research. But I'd never been to the Delta before, and it was totally interesting and in some ways, like, matched my expectations. Um, I had my older son with me, and he is a huge barbecue fan. So some of our favorite moments were just, like, seeking out these barbecue places. That was great fun. I was struck by how poor a lot of these states are. I mean, I kind of knew that Mississippi in particular is one of the poorest states in the union, but driving around really reinforced that. And I felt like, um, especially in both Jackson and Birmingham, this and Selma, a little less, the sense that like you'd be walking down a city block that seemed like downtown and suddenly all the storefronts would be vacant in a way that I remember from towns in like New England from several years ago, but um, just always gives me such a sad kind of ghost town feeling. Take it away, Jamel. What are what are your thoughts about traveling in the South? I think I, be, I was in Oklahoma doing a little project and driving kind of throughout East Oklahoma. And likewise, what stuck out was just the long stretches where it would just be where it was either empty land or obvious very sort of severe poverty uh, places where they're both isolated and and very poor i'll also say on a more uh, cheerier note a more positive note that in my time both in oklahoma and traveling in alabama and traveling in louisiana and kind of throughout uh the deep south and really in sort of surrounding regions i think one thing I think it's it's not appreciated enough is how beautiful these places of the country are. I think Alabama in particular is a very is a gorgeous state, and I have always enjoyed driving through it. Um, and I think that the states have a lot to offer in terms of of culture uh, and and food and sort of like aesthetic beauty. And um, it sort of always disappoints me when people kind of dismiss the South as kind of a, a part of the country that doesn't contribute anything to the national whole. I think it, it's very much uh, a place uh, rich in culture and certainly rich in history that more people should spend time in. If nothing else, because you can't really get any sense of like this, the nation's history without sort of a, a firm understanding of what's happened in the South. So one thing I was really struck by, Jamel, along those lines is that in a lot of the places we visited, there the government had put up these historical markers, like both those kind of blue signs with the engraved letters that I've seen in other places. And then and, and those signs were often about churches. In fact, I don't even maybe they were just for religious markers, but they would have the history of the founding of or development of some church and it might be white 
church or a black church. Like, it could be either. And then there were these really interesting civil rights history um, markers in a lot of places, which, like, I just learned a lot from. And so I felt like there had been this conscious effort to bring out the history of the area that made it easier to appreciate as, like, this visitor wandering through. I think that's right. And while it's still the case that in a lot of places those historical markers include kind of Confederate statues and memorials and such to Confederate soldiers and and generals, there are a lot of places in the South where that stuff is being actively contested and grappled with and um, recontextualized. So, you know, this is also me saying that people should not assume just because an electoral college map shows a bunch of red in the deep south doesn't mean these places aren't like politically diverse with really interesting histories for example hey gabfesters that was just a tease for slate plus to listen to the rest of the slate plus conversation join slate plus now at slate.com slash gabfest plus